Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. Before I continue, I'd like to say that we've set up our new Patreon page. You just go to patreon.com slash CanadaX, that's E-H-X, where we have multiple tiers of things you can choose from, from $3 all the way up to $100, with great rewards for each one. In these days of people worrying about the coronavirus, it is important that we look back on another virus that hit Canada over 100 years ago. It was the Spanish flu, and it tore through Canada as the country was just starting to heal from the First World War. Today on the podcast, I look at the Spanish flu and its impact. I'll also talk to Kenton DeYoung, who helped to get a monument created for the victims of the Spanish flu in Regina a couple years ago. First, some context related to the worldwide spread of the disease. The Spanish flu appeared in January 1918 and would go on to infect 500 million people around the planet, representing 27% of the world's population. No area was safe from the disease, with it even reaching Pacific Islands and the Arctic. The death toll is estimated to be between 40 to 50 million, which, but it could have been as high as 100 million, and easily dwarfed the death toll of the First World War. In the first years of the pandemic in the United States, life expectancy dropped by 12 years. What would start with a headache, chills, and fever would lead to death within 24 hours. The most vulnerable, and this was unusual for the disease, were those aged 20 to 40, rather than children and the elderly. With troops returning from the First World War, they brought with them this unwelcome hitchhiker, the Spanish flu. The first wave of the flu hit in the spring of 1918, arriving in Quebec City, Montreal, and Halifax, followed by another wave in the fall of that year. The second wave of the virus would result in 90% of the deaths. The first deaths from the flu are believed to have occurred in Victoriaville, Quebec, due to a conference of Catholics being held there. Infected American clergy attended, and the communion cups were likely tainted with the virus. The flu spread across Canada, quickly becoming a serious disease that killed with terrible speed. It would arrive in Newfoundland on September 30th aboard a steamer with three infected crew. Within two weeks, hundreds were infected. On October 17th, the Public Health Division of Newfoundland was appealing for nurses and volunteers. One such volunteer was Ethel Dickinson, who was working at the King George V Seamen's Institute, and she contracted the flu on October 24th. After two days, she was dead. In Montreal, 3,128 people would die from the flu. In Toronto, 1,600 died with the city reporting as many as 50 deaths a day. As for the aforementioned Montreal, it had to retrofit its trolley cars to deal with the dead. Canadians took several measures to deal with the flu. Moderate doses of heroin were used for coughing and insomnia. Epsom salts were used for cleaning out the digestive tract, and even aspirin was suggested as a way of dealing with the flu. For many Canadians, laxatives were used to deal with the flu even though doctors said it was useless. Alcohol was also used as a pain reliever, but prohibition was still in force and alcohol was difficult to come by. Companies began to latch on the flu as a way to make money. Many touted their products as a means to stave off the flu. Eaton's department store advertised the following, Keeping warm spells safety first in these days of epidemic and chilly houses. Slippers that the convalescent will specially appreciate. Bovril, which is made from a beef extract, stated that it could guard against epidemics by building up the digestive tracts of the body. 
Milton's Jaeger Pure Wool in Montreal advertised to people asking them to consult with them as they would a doctor about how to protect themselves from chill. Even insurance companies latched on. The Dominion of Canada Guarantee and Accident Insurance Company stated the following in an advertisement. Our special sickness policy covers Spanish influenza, pays a weekly indemnity, and makes a weekly provision for hospital expenses. One interesting note is that in 1918, Canada had more life insurance claims for influenza, 32.6%, than the war itself, which was 20.95%. Quack remedies abounded during those early days of the Spanish flu. One store in Victoria, BC advertised that eating more candy meant less flu. Chemists would actually sell chili paste to put on the chests of flu victims, and letters to newspapers suggested that enemas and too much red meat were the cause of the flu. Some people even placed sliced onions throughout the house believing that bad vapors were causing the flu. The demand for citrus to combat the flu pushed the price of lemons to $21 per dozen in modern funds. The tragic tales of the flu are well documented. Arthur Barton of Brandon, Manitoba joined the army at 24 and survived the war before dying from the flu on November 5, 1918, just as he had returned home. Lieutenant Harry Helliwell of Edmonton got the flu while recruiting dogs in northern Alberta. As he lay dying, he did not know that his wife, who nursed flu patients, had already died, and he would join her soon after. Donald William of St. Thomas, Ontario was considered to be one of the best lawyers in the country, and one of the youngest in the history of Canada, and he would die of the flu. A couple, identified as Mr. and Mrs. Quinn, would contract the flu on the same day as their newborn baby. All three would die. The only survivor of the family would be a 14-month-old toddler. Arthur Lapointe, a Canadian soldier in the First World War, would write about the flu suddenly hitting him. As I reach the top, my head swims with sudden nausea. Everything around me whirls. I falter, then fainting, fall headlong to the ground. I feel sick and think I am about to die. Lapointe would recover from the flu, but upon returning to Canada, he found that three of his brothers and two of his sisters had died. Doctors began to realize that quarantine was the best course to stop the spread of disease. Dr. H. O. Hewitt in Guelph, Ontario would write to the Canadian Journal of Public Health about two doctors who took two different approaches. He would say, I know of a town in Ontario with only two doctors and a hospital well out of town. Dr. One kept his patients at home in the bed he found them in and preached the rules and lost very few patients. Dr. Two had his patients driven in an ordinary conveyance to the hospital and used as many drugs, but was unfortunate in his results. Doctors also found that surgical masks were ineffective. Dr. T.H. Whitelaw, the Medical Officer of Health for Edmonton, wrote in the December 1919 Canadian Medical Association Journal the following. The number of cases continues to increase after the province of Alberta ordered everyone to wear a mask outside the home, and public confidence in it as a prevention soon gave way to ridicule. The report didn't stop the Alberta government from making it illegal to go outside without wearing a mask. Other places also instituted odd laws to curtail the flu. Winnipeg banned spitting, and roads throughout the country were patrolled to prevent the movement of the sick. Communities throughout the country ordered stores and bars to close early, and public places such as movie houses, bowling alleys, churches, and auction rooms were completely closed along with schools. Companies, which still operated, urged their staff to practice good hygiene when dealing with the flu. A memo sent to the staff of the Bell Telephone Company stated that the mouth should be covered when sneezing or coughing, and that employees should avoid crowds and gargle with salt water. These efforts didn't help, and enough operators fell ill in Montreal that the Bell offices had to ask the public to use the phone only when absolutely necessary. 
Doctors had to deal with the flu constantly and fatigue was rampant as they worked long hours. The aforementioned Dr. Whitelaw would state, Fatigue among doctors and nurses who necessarily had to work long hours undoubtedly accounted for their tending to fall victim to the disease rather than the elements of special exposure which their work entailed. One estimate put the patient-to-doctor ratio in Canada at 700 patients for every one doctor. As the flu raged, Canada had no federal health department to deal with the national response. Only provincial and municipal departments existed. The federal health department was created in 1919 as a response to the flu. And while the government would create this new federal health department, it was extremely late in its response to the crisis. When Halifax asked the federal government for help with ships carrying those infected with the flu, the government responded that the outbreaks aboard vessels were the jurisdiction of the province or the municipality, not the federal government. Even ships leaving Canada made the entire worldwide flu worse. The HMT Hunsend had 649 soldiers on it, of which 5% died on their way to Europe from the flu. The federal government actually made matters worse through their various efforts. They allowed the army to continue to knock door-to-door to conscript people for the war, thereby spreading the virus to uninfected homes. One of the worst things the government did, though, was send a troop train to Vancouver, which had flu-infected soldiers on it, who were going to be part of the Siberian Expeditionary Force. This was a secret mission to overthrow the communist government in Russia. The train stopped on a regular basis to dispatch infected soldiers to local hospitals. This one train would carry the virus to countless rural communities, as well as Edmonton, Calgary, and Vancouver. In the space of 19 days, the flu had arrived on the east coast of Canada and spread to the other side of the country. In the first two weeks of the disease appearing in Vancouver, there were 522 cases. Within three months, 900 had died. As well, some local health boards did not respond to the flu, believing it was not as bad as first believed. T.J. Minnies, chairman of the Board of Health in Brantford, Ontario, refused to implement the request of the medical officer on the board. Four days later, he claimed the flu had passed by the city. Within one week, the city had 2,500 cases of flu, and Minnies was forced to resign. The end of the First World War was a cause of celebration, but many communities would not allow people to come together for fear of spreading the virus. In Kenora, Ontario, public gatherings were forbidden, including to celebrate the end of the war. Many other communities did not listen, though. In Saskatchewan, many communities came together to celebrate. In the days after the end of the war celebrations, 2,500 people would die from the flu. The flu was bad enough that even Canada's game of hockey was impacted. If you look on the Stanley Cup, you will see that in 1919, both the Montreal Canadiens and the Seattle Metropolitans are listed for that year, along with the words, series not completed. The two teams have played five games in the series to decide the winner of the Stanley Cup. But in the sixth game, the flu hit both teams and only four of the Canadians' players were actually able to get out of bed. Joe Hall, a star defenseman for the Canadians, would never get out of bed, dying of the flu on April 5th. One group hit extremely hard by the flu were the indigenous people, but sadly their story is often lost amid the other stories of the Spanish flu. Over the course of Christmas 1918 alone, 20% of the residents of Norway House Manitoba, all indigenous, were killed by the flu. In Labrador, the supply ship Harmony visited an indigenous community and 86 of the 100 residents were dead following the visit. In the area, the population fell from 220 to 70. The ship then went to Okak, and soon after, 204 of the 263 residents were dead. One survivor was 7-year-old Martha Joshua, who survived alone in the area for five weeks before a search party found her. 
Her entire family had died from the flu and she survived by eating hard bread and melting snow for drinking water. The disease infected white people as much as it did indigenous, but the indigenous people had much worse medical care available to them. A report published in 1919 found that indigenous Canadians died at a rate of five times the national average. In Labrador alone, the Inuit population lost one-third of its people from the flu. And it was found that early implementation of the treatment for the flu was critical. If treatment was done within four days of getting the flu, the fatality rate was 19%, compared to 59% if it took longer than four days. The community of Okak had been the largest Inuit settlement in Labrador before the pandemic. By January of 1919, every adult male was dead, and the community was dismantled and abandoned forever. Ketora Boas was a 20-year-old resident of Okak, and he would describe the feeling of the community being gone. For a long time, there was a sense of decline as far as yearly activities were concerned amongst the Inuit and in all northern Labrador communities. A sense of letdown was in the air for a long time. In Saskatchewan, the government was receiving reports during the winter of 1918 of entire homesteads sitting empty except for the frozen corpses of the people inside. In her book, The Silent Enemy, Eileen Pettigrew described how one traveling salesman came to Paradise Hill, Saskatchewan to find the entire town deserted. The store was empty except for the bodies of the owner and his wife. One young man was digging graves for his entire family, and a tent was filled with three dead indigenous men. William Lyon Mackenzie King, future Prime Minister of Canada, would write in his diary about the plague. The number of families without anyone to help them, persons dying and others ill and unified beside them, is frightful. It is a frightful plague rampant all over the world. Now I'd like to go to my interview with Kenton de Youngnow, who helped to create a monument to the victims of the Spanish flu in Regina. A city that had already dealt with a deadly tornado in 1912, the loss of many citizens during the First World War, and then the Spanish flu. In Regina, the first mention of the flu appears in the October 1st, 1918 issue of the Regina Leader, and the disease would quickly spread. So let's go to Kenton. So at that time, uh, it was going into fall of, of, of 1918. Um, the world in Canada, Regina, had been at war for about four years now. Uh, so, you know, there was, wasn't many people. There was less doctors, less nurses, less uh, maintenance people. Um, at that time, the big drive, you know, to get more uh, soldiers out there had, had slowed down a bit. Um, but there was still the, the nationalism, the pride, the war bond drives, everything they could to try and drum up interest in the war. So with this epidemic coming, a lot of people took it as the war finally coming home. It was like they've, they've had all this death around them for years, and now it's just another layer of it. That has come to them. Everyone was talking about the Spanish flu up until November 11th, 1918, and then it stops. But of course, it continues. The flu just doesn't go away. It doesn't care about uh, uh, a truce or the end of a war. Uh, the flu carries on. Uh, it still spreads. It still mutates. And a lot of people talked about it in 2018 and 2019. But actually, if I'm finding more research and people talking about it now because of the current uh, health crisis going on. That's one of the mysteries about the flu is why did it target people between the ages of 18 and 35? Most influenza viruses, they kind of have a death rate. Well, it looks like a U on a chart, either the very young or the very old. Mm -hmm. This one was more like a W. It was the very young, the very old, and in the middle was a big spike, which was the people between the ages of 18 and 35. 
To my research, um, like it took a little longer to get here than say Toronto or Winnipeg. Um, it was comparable. I was, I, I believe Winnipeg was hit worse than we were, but just by a little bit. Um, by the time it got to Alberta, they had started putting in policies across the province, or sorry, across the country to quarantine, to isolate, to try and prevent it from happening. So by the time it got to Alberta, they had kind of like known about it because you know you see it coming from the east and you know that bc already has it so they've kind of prepared for it regina didn't prepare as much and in fact um during the epidemic the early days of it the mayor of saskatoon came down to talk to the the subcommittee that was created to deal with it and he came down for answers instead he left saying that they were asking him for answers so uh regina didn't do as good as they could have but um they weren't the hardest hit by any means. Uh, I'd say they're more um, average. So it arrived. The um, it arrived in Saskatchewan. They say on October first, but the first death in Regina wasn't until October the sixth, and it, it kind of carried on until about the middle of November. But you know that's just when they stopped reporting about it. We do know from health records that it continued into 1919, and then it kind of stopped around March of 1920. So the big spike was October, November, then it dipped down once the war ended, and then it kind of fizzled out for the next year and a half. It tore the city apart. It tore every community it hit apart. Uh, so they shut down the schools. The teachers became nurses. Um, they shut down the churches for the first, and I believe the only time in Saskatchewan history, all the churches were shut down. Public transportation was shut down. Um, stores had their hours restricted. You couldn't be in gatherings. People couldn't have funerals for more than 15 minutes. The entire city went into lockdown and across the province it was every community was under quarantine uh it was devastating for for everybody um and then the newspaper clipping says i think it was uh november 6th or something like that uh regional life goes back to normal <laughs> but like it completely shut down the, the city as it was for those for those six to eight weeks uh so in uh 2017 uh, I organized a monument for the 330 Regina victims of the Spanish influenza. Uh, it was unveiled uh, in December of 2017, uh, just a month before the uh, the anniversary of the disease, uh, the virus started in uh, 1918. About that time, I was looking at doing uh, tours of the cemetery after I had found an old tour book of the cemetery. And uh, one section of the book said that a certain area uh, of the cemetery was uh, very marshy and it flooded a lot and that that area was used uh, as a potter's field uh, and it was full of victims from the Spanish flu. Now, the city has clarified that that area is not a potter's field and that book is incorrect, but uh, it was accurate when it said that it was full of victims from the influenza. The Spanish flu was terrible, but it would lead to many modern health practices as well as the discovery of different blood types and more. Good would come from it, but its impact would be felt for decades to come by those who lived through it. Information for this article comes from Wikipedia, Canada History, Parks Canada, the CBC, the National Post, Canadian Geographic, and Heritage Newfoundland. I hope you enjoyed this look at the Spanish flu and its impact on Canada, and if you did, please give a rating and review. You can reach me at CanadianHistoryX, that's E-H-X, at gmail.com. And again, don't forget to support the podcast at patreon.com slash CanadaX, E-H-X. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.